Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Let me just start with a um, with a couple of things. Firstly, the South Service, where I've been this morning, uh, send their love and greetings. They were all in fine fettle and good shape, and uh, they wanted to. Uh, just remind you that they love you and, uh, and say hi, so that I have now done. Piece of news just before we get into the sermon for today, and really a request for prayer as well. Uh, let me introduce it like this. We often talk, as a church, of working for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of our communities and of the city. And I guess every church uh, worth their salt works for spiritual renewal. They do Alpha, Christianity Explored, help people grow in the spiritual life. Very, very important. Most churches are working for the social renewal of their communities. Our friend Matt Bird at the Cinnamon Network estimates that the church and other faith communities serve, save the taxpayer £3 billion a year through our food banks and our debt advice and our street pastors, all the other fantastic things that the church does. But how about cultural renewal? How do we find help and assistance in terms of making this world a better place uh, in all its fullness, in every industry, in every aspect, and consequently start to shape the thinking of the people that live in our communities and world? And it's really with that in mind that we are upping our focus on different everything events this year. Culture renewal has become something very important to us at Christchurch London, along with these other elements. And in the next month, uh, I am hosting two events, which I'd be particularly grateful for your prayer for. In a couple of weekends' time, in fact, Philip and I are hosting a Culture Makers Weekend, the Everything Culture Makers Retreat. We've got people coming from all around the country who want to use their jobs, their time, their networks, their abilities to work for a better world, and uh, under the watchword, I guess, of create rather than complain. And we're really looking forward to this weekend. We're anticipating we'll do it year after year. We're trusting that we will develop an unparalleled network of people of faith who want to work for the well-being and the flourishing of their communities. And uh, we'd be really grateful if you pray for us. If you'd like to join us and you haven't booked in, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. ChristChurchLondon.org forward slash everything and you'll find all the details there. We'd love to have you along uh, for the start of what we think will be a very exciting journey. Then the next Wednesday and Thursday, we've got about 45 pastors joining us for the Everything Church Leaders Retreat. So if the first is from, you know, what do I do in my job Monday through Friday? The second one is for those church leaders who are wanting to equip their churches to work for cultural, social, and spiritual renewal. We have network leaders coming from Denmark. We have church leaders coming from Germany, as well as a really good a representation from across the UK. So please pray for us. Uh, these, we, these sort of retreats really work when you know God's presence and know God owning them. Uh, and uh, so we'd be grateful for your prayer for both of those. Later in the year, in the autumn, we will be repeating our Everything Conference, All Day Conference on a Saturday. That's not till November. Don't need to worry about that right now. We'll be uh, reminding you of that and giving you details in due course. Uh, but any prayers for these two coming this month uh, Philip and I would be hugely grateful for. We are in the middle at the moment of a series uh, called Visions of God. And it came out of a desire to continue to encourage every service of Christ Church London to be worshippers. 
Now, some of you may remember that we actually started this year with a four-week series on worship. So it does beg a question, David, why are we doing more on worship? And probably the easiest way of explaining it is to take a barbecue analogy, it being that time of year. If you marinate your meat simply by dipping it in the sauce and taking it straight out again, there won't be much difference to the taste. But if you put it in the sauce and you leave it for 24 hours, you've got it in the fridge and it's soaking away, then every mouthful and every taste is shaped by that marinade. Now, to become worshippers and to maintain that posture and focus on worship does require a similar sort of thing. In my experience, it doesn't come out of one day or even out of one series, but it comes out of regular reminders. I was party to a conversation recently that went like this. Two people talking. One of them said, in my church, I've really struggled with the worship recently. Their fellow attender of the same church said, I would never have guessed that. Whenever I look over to where you sit, you're always worshipping. Response from the first one, that is what I think is a disciple. I just decide to worship whatever else is going on around me. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, what a fantastic heart. What a fantastic, where did that start? How did that get into that person's heart? Is that your heart? Is that our hearts as a church? Whatever's going on, wherever we are, we understand Number one priority, worship God. And that is why we wanted to take a different perspective this time, but come back to that same, uh, that same subject matter, that same emphasis of our worship. And we thought we would do it through different people's spiritual experiences or encounters with God through the Scriptures. A few weeks ago, Andy kicked the series off by looking at Daniel chapter 7. Last week... Liam spoke on Ezekiel. This week we're looking at Isaiah. If you're familiar with those passages, they are pretty unusual experiences. Or one might even say pretty strange experiences. So just before we look at Isaiah's experience today, let me just ask a question. Because some of you might be thinking, what should we do with these experiences? Are they really just the result of an over-fertile imagination? or too much cheese the night before? Or are they something more authentic? And one of the reasons I want to ask that question is because they're not just relevant to 3,000 years ago. They're relevant to today. For It's my conviction those experiences still happen today. So let me just make a couple of comments about them. Firstly, these experiences, these intense, often deep spiritual experiences lead to lives being transformed. Ezekiel chapter 1, that experience he had led to a whole ministry, a whole book of the Bible. The chapter we'll look at today is one chapter of another 65 that Isaiah penned. These experiences were not just a momentary thing, but they led, they led themselves to a changed life as a result. Interesting wonder whether, in fact, I'm quite sure that if we had time to talk across this room here, we'd have others here who would say, I had an experience that changed my life too. Second thing we should bear in mind about them is that they each resulted in worship. 
That, by the way, is a great test. If you're ever wondering, is something really genuine or not, always ask, does it glorify God or does it glorify the individual? If it glorifies God, that is a great pointer that this is a genuine God-given experience. This one we'll see in just a moment. Isaiah immediately starts worshipping. Ah, clue. Probably from God. The third thing about it is that sometimes I hear people say those sorts of experiences, well, they're really just emotionalism or they're anti-intellectual. And we, of course, value the life of the mind. I would say, on the contrary, if you read the other 65 chapters, it's like Isaiah's thinking is elevated and sharpened to a new pitch. There's remarkable clarity and creativity and incisiveness and power in his thinking. This experience has not dumbed down his rational processes, but if anything, has heightened them. This is not just emotionalism, which may last for a moment, this is something altogether deeper and more powerful. Now, interestingly, too, the New Testament makes it clear there should be more of these experiences today than there were in the Old Testament. We've just looked at Old Testament experiences so far. But the New Testament says we now live, and we still live, in the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit is poured out on the revisions and dreams and encounters with God in the Spirit. So watch out. Because those sorts of experiences still happen today. Now it's not, however, that we go seeking the experience. Oh, I've never had an experience, I must be second class. Or something of that sort. No, we seek God and he gives us encounters. He speaks to us in different ways at different times as we need. But I just wanted to start by saying, listen... These sort of experiences, they still happen today. There's still countless people right across the globe who would say something unexpected and unusual happened. I, to use Isaiah's term at the beginning of this chapter, I saw the Lord. Well, couldn't you see him before? Well, I saw him in a vivid, new, dynamic way that I hadn't done before. So we are... Started the sermon slightly earlier, and I'm going to preach slightly shorter this morning. Do I hear a cheer for a shorter sermon? <laughs> it's quite funny, actually. I, I came in this morning, and Dan said to me, said, so how did it go in the south? I said, well, it was a bit shorter than I expected, but I've never had anyone complain that my sermons were too short. So I think that was fine. But this time, it's consciously shorter so that we have time to worship at the end and share communion together. And you'll realize as we go through this passage that it lends itself very well to sharing communion and to worship. So, visions of God. Experiences of God that lead to worship. What can we learn from them? How do we apply that to us in the 21st century? And just to underline this, if you like, before we go any further, this week I was corresponding with somebody who wanted to come to the Culture Makers Weekend that I've just mentioned. This is somebody who I have not seen for 15 years or so. But he wrote to me and he said this. He said, I still remember an experience that I had in your living room many years ago. This was when Philip and I lived in Birmingham. We were starting a church in Birmingham, starting churches across the Midlands. I had an experience in your living room many years ago in which someone had a vision of me waving a flag for justice 
in the city, in Birmingham, it made a very deep impression upon me. Fifteen years later, he says, I am in senior leadership role in a law firm whose mission is uniquely to... or It's an unusual mission statement. You see what I mean? The mission statement is to improve lives, community, and society. Hooray that we have law firms that do that. I know God has placed me here, and that powerful experience all those years ago is being fulfilled. So from time to time, we have life-altering experiences, positive ones, from the Lord that shape us uh, for the next stages of our life. It's interesting here that actually the very first words that Isaiah writes in this chapter is, in the year that King Isaiah died. Why does he say that? Because what he's wanting to say is, I have an altogether otherworldly experience, but it is located in the reality of history. We all know, he would have said to his audience, we all remember when King Isaiah died. It was that year, this otherworldly experience happened in this year and affected my and our history together as a result. So those experiences shouldn't be otherworldly, or if they are otherworldly, they should then affect the material, everyday world in which we stand and live and have our being. Okay, with that all said by way of introduction, or probably about three introductions there, let's have a look at the passage for a few minutes and then we're going to worship and take communion together. And the first thing that happens here that becomes clear is God is to be worshipped. Isaiah says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, and he describes him in three ways. He says he is high and exalted. He's seated on a throne, and his train fills the temple. And in that ancient hierarchical society that Isaiah lived in, to liken God to a king in that way was to also say he's to be worshipped, and he's to be praised. There is nobody else like him and no one else to be praised in the same way. I've been thinking about this a bit recently. I've been thinking about, and we often say that we're made to be worshippers, but God is the only thing to be worshipped that makes us, fulfills us, that makes us the people we should be. And I was reminded of this when I went to hear when I went to a conference and hear a talk in the Royal Albert Hall recently, Brian Stevenson was speaking. Some of you may know him. He was a, a new name to me, but I know some of you know him. He's a lawyer who's given his life to working in the criminal justice system in the States and some of the abuses that are present within that, and particularly with those on death row. And he tells a packed Royal Albert Hall his story, how he was led that way, and it became evident that he was quite a guy. He was full of compassion. He'd taken risks with his career. He could easily have done corporate law for some big institutions, which would have paid him many multiples more than going to the most needy in society. But that's where he went, spend his life in prison. He said, I've had a long and illustrious prison career, he said. And he really was incredibly impressive. And you could tell everyone is on the edge of their seats listening. When he finishes as one, 
everyone stands. It's not one of those ones where people start at the front and everyone behind feels obliged to stand as well. This is just boom. And it is the longest standing ovation that I have ever seen in my life. And I'm some way up and I'm looking down and I can spot an Oscar-nominated uh, actress and she is on her feet and she is cheering and saying, yes! And then I also spotted a, uh, a musician who fills stadiums around the world. And he was on his feet. And he was cheering. And a number of thoughts, I, I'm sort of, I'm in it for a while. I'm applauding with the rest of them. And then after a while, I sort of dial out and sort of look at the whole thing. And I, here's some thoughts that I had. The first thought I had was we are made to pick out greatness and applaud it. If you like, we're made to worship. I mean, it was just this instinctive thing. This, he, was so fantastic that no one had to be told it would be polite to applaud now. It was just spontaneous. Yes! How much more for the one who is high and lifted up, seated on a throne and whose robe fills the temple? That's what we're made to do. We're meant to be like that. Sometimes people say, oh, well, you shouldn't. Don't worship God. That will reduce your autonomy as a human being. It will make you less human. Rubbish. It actually makes you who you are. You're born to worship. And that's the first thing. I'm watching them, watching everyone, watching sort of myself as well, if you can do that. And I'm just thinking, we are made to adore made to adore then I get a second thought and I think we are made to adore but I wonder what Brian and his wife and his children make of all this applause I mean I suspect his children while like dad's great would have also been like he is only a man we know we live with him and I'm sure he'd have been the first to say the same thing in other words, he, great story, amazing role that he's playing. He has to be, because we all are, he's flawed. So my second thought was, if this worship goes on and on, it puts us in a dangerous position. Because one day we could get let down. And so my first thought is, we're made to worship. My second thought is, yes, but it's not safe to worship other men. That's dangerous business. And we only need to look around this world and the disappointment over superstars to know it's just bad practice. Don't do it. Worship instead. Worship God rather than anyone else. So Isaiah sees God and it's like this call. Wow, high, exalted, train for us to worship him. People, in a few minutes, worship him. I mean, worship him in your heart. Don't listen to me. Worship him right now. That's what we're made to do. And as Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, he then also becomes aware that the whole of heaven is already worshipping. We're told the seraphs are crying, holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the Old Testament where that description is used three times. When it's used twice, it's like that's very. He's very holy. Holy, holy, holy is like very, very holy. It's like super, super, super superlative. 
I mean, he is just he is the tops. Holy, and the, the seraphs, the heavenly creatures are crying. Reminded of John in Revelation when he says, Worthy is the Lamb. And he says, There's all the heavenly creatures are singing and giving him power and riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Now, you may have thought that 11 o'clock, when Rich struck up the first chord, that worship was starting today. But no, you were just joining in to the worship that's already going on. Angels, seraphs, cherubs are created beings, just as we are. The whole created order works. It's like when you see the Lord, it's like this magnetic worship just gets drawn out of you. So this is not, in fact, just the heavenly beings and you and I, but it's the whole of creation. You may not be aware of this right now, but it's a glorious day out there. The sun is shining. The Thames looks fantastic. The South Service are heading over to Dulwich School grounds for a picnic at lunchtime. It will feel like creation is worshipping because it's going to look fantastic. And so actually all of the created world is worshipping. The heavenly beings are worshipping. The psalmist says, shout for joy to the Lord who? All the earth, not just you and I, all the earth. Let the sea resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. So as we come to worship he who it's safe to worship, he who will never let us down, never abuse us, never surprise us in a poor way, only with, wow, he's more and more and more than I imagined he could be. So we worship him and then we find we're caught up with the whole of the created order. The created angelic beings, the trees, every part of creation, and humanity itself. And so we come to worship. So come on, Christchurch. But not just today. The goal of this series is not just to have good worship after an inspiring sermon, if it happens to be that. The goal is that something gets set in men and women's hearts that says, for the rest of my life, wherever I am, I'm a worshipper first and foremost. That's what I do. Everything else, excuse me, everything else falls into place as a result. So we are worshippers. Isaiah sees God. He's great and to be worshipped. The second and interesting thing that happens to Isaiah is that he, as he's worshipping, the worship has a deep effect on him. A deep effect. He comes out, in fact, genuinely changed. So he's worshipping, he sees God, and then he shouts, Woe is me! I am ruined! Now, that language sounds a bit sort of Dickensian now. It's not the sort of thing, you know, I wouldn't say to Andy afterwards, Andy, hi, how are you? And he would say, David, I'm ruined. You know, it's just not language that we use now. But nevertheless, if one did, it's the sort of language you use if you've lost everything. I've lost my family, my business, my ha- I just... I haven't got any. I'm ruined. Now, for Isaiah, this wasn't because of a change of things. Things hadn't changed in the, in the material world, but he's seen life differently. Now, that happens during worship. We're worshipping God, and then suddenly, it's like in our hearts, we see things that we haven't seen before, or we see things that we knew, but they have a new power, a new effect, a new vibrancy that they haven't had. 
And it's like, oh, I've seen it for the first time. It's how it feels. He says, I'm ruined. Why? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What's he talking? It's not that he didn't have a shower this morning. He's saying that what I, what I believe in my heart and what I say with my mouth aren't always the same thing. That there's a gap between my convictions and my actions. That there's a lack of integratedness in who I am, between my values, what I believe, and how I act. In other words, there's a lack of integrity. And he suddenly sees it. And we've probably all had this experience on occasion. I know I've got a weakness here. I know. And then another time, oh my word. I see it. And this is Isaiah here. He sees his lack. And of course, it's not just a lack for the individual. He says, and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. Now, if there's any shortfalling in our world right now, I would suggest it's integrity. Why is it that the great majority of us here, possibly all, none of us, listen to a politician and immediately believe what they say? There's an inbuilt sense of, or a journalist, you read an article, is that really the case? Is this fake news? I was watching a sporting event the other day, and it was going totally the way you wouldn't have expected it to. I mean, the book is, we're going to lose some money here. And I was watching it, and I was absolutely gripped. This shouldn't be happening. How is this happening? Someone else comes in and says, it must be rigged. I thought, no, you are totally spoiling this for me. But at the same time, I couldn't get it out of my mind because of all the sporting scandals we've had. And you see how a bit of lack of integrity, unclean lips, speaking one way, believing something else, affects everything over time. I want to suggest, or I think you'll all agree, that there is this deep sense of disease in our world right now, isn't there? This deep sense something's not right. I was in the car the other day listening to Someone being interviewed, it was Peter Hook, who some of you will remember Joy Division or New Order, the new wave bands, where he was co-founder of that with Ian Curtis. And he was saying that one of the worst experiences of his life was when his daughter called him from the Ariana Grande uh, concert at Manchester just after the bomb had gone off. He said it was a terrifying moment, although his daughter was safe. He said, it had a profound effect on me. He said, it had a profound effect on my daughter. My daughter, this whole last year, because of course we've just had the anniversary, this whole last year, he said, she's not wanted to go out. In fact, he said, we took her to San Diego just before the anniversary so she wouldn't be caught up in any of the news about it. And he said, we got to San Diego and two days later there was a high school shooting just down the road. And he said this, on live on, on Five Life, he said, someone really needs to come up with a way of solving the world's problems because we are in a pretty bad way. And of course, we are, and much of it, not all of it, there's many different aspects, but one of it is people of unclean lips. Isaiah said, I am, but he also said, we are. Both of those. So what's the... What's the way out? Is there any hope? Is there any solution? Well, I want to suggest that the way that Isaiah acts is a textbook 
of how you and I should be in those moments where we're aware of our weaknesses, where we know our shortcomings and we know we need to do something about it. And the first thing is he just says, I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I'm responsible. He doesn't shift the blame at all. I don't know about you, but I meet lots of people, including at times myself, who like to shift the blame to others. I'm very struck by how difficult at times it is to say, I'm sorry. Because the implication of I'm sorry is I was at fault in the first place. But actually that statement, I am responsible, is one of the most powerful tools for personal change that the Bible gives us. You can't change until you first say, I've got a problem. It's part of what STEPS does, that wonderful course that so many of us have benefited from, is early on in the course we say, whatever else is going on, however many other conduits and reasons there might be for my actions, I'm responsible. You read the New Testament, that makes that point over and over and over again. And Isaiah, without reading the New Testament, had got there. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, probably there were others who were a lot worse than he. So he could have easily said, well, it, yeah, it's my fault, but you should see them over there. But he doesn't. He says, me. No casting blame on others. No excusing by the depth or the other forces about him. Simply, I am responsible. Because when you say you're responsible, when you do what only you can do, for only you can say that in a heartfelt way, I'm responsible. Then God will do what only he can do. And what God does, we're told in this passage, or the picture is of the seraph, and it says the seraph takes a burning coal from the altar. What's the altar? The altar burns 24-7 in the temple, showing the white-hot love of God to remove sin. And the seraph picks a coal from that altar and goes to Isaiah and touches his lips and says, you are made clean. You are pure. And then it says, your sin is taken away and your guilt is atoned for. What? Atoned for. Old Testament. Old Testament. Isaiah would have known instinctively what he was talking about, for it was the festival of atonement. And in the festival, two things happen. First of all, the high priest gets a goat and confesses all your and my sin over the goat and then sends the goat out into the wilderness. So you literally watch your sin go away from you. You watch the goat go further and further into the distance and then disappearing, knowing within a short while that goat will expire. And with that goat expiring, so goes your sin as well. First goat goes into the wilderness. The second goat is sacrificed to pay our debt for the actions we have committed. And the blood is taken and sprinkled in the Holy and the Holies over the mercy seat. And all of this, of course, anticipates Jesus, who on the cross purifies you and me, takes our sin away and pays the sacrifice our debt. It all happens in that place. And so we start by seeing him and worshipping. We become aware of our inadequacy and then we're reminded of what Jesus has done which cleans us, takes our sin away and pays our debt. We're going to do communion in a minute. It should be full of joy because he has done those things. There's no need for a goat now 
We don't once a year get a goat in here, confess our sins and send it down the Thames. Because one has died once and for all. A lamb, the lamb of God. We don't need to sacrifice animals for he has paid. He has sacrificed once and for all. We get to eat the bread and drink the wine in a moment as it gives us life. So we see him. He's high and lifted up. We worship him. We then experience him. It has a deep effect. Familiar truth coming with fresh power. And then finally, we're reminded that our worship leads to action. That worship that says you are Lord, but no, I'm not going to do our oxymoron. They don't make sense. You can't, you can't have that. If Jesus is Lord means yes, whatever. Yes, whatever you want. And Isaiah, here's the words. Who will go? Who will take the message of my love to the people? So Isaiah, who is worshipping, just goes, me. So we sometimes have experiences that take familiar truths and put them in our hearts in new ways. Other times we hear his voice. On occasions, we hear his voice for the whole church. Somebody comes to the front and shares something. On other occasions, you hear his voice for you. And you need to do something. So watch out. He may speak in the next 20 minutes. Can the band come back, please? I was reminded recently, or was reading recently, of the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. I don't know whether anyone here has read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Book written in the 1850s in the US and was uh, pivotal in the resulting uh, both war but then the releasing of slaves right across the southern half of the United States. The author was a little woman. I mean literally, she was diminutive in stature. Uh, She was not tall, little woman, Harriet Beecher Stowe and an experience, a vision that she had during worship. And in that vision, she, had a, she saw the scenes, the last scenes of what she wrote in the book. Actually, when Abraham Lincoln, tall man, met her for the first time, he sort of looked down on her and he said, now he said, you're the little woman who started the Civil War, aren't you? Because her book broke all publishing records. In fact, one time she said, she said, I didn't write that book, God did. What was that the result of? It was the result of worship. She's worshipping away. She sees a vision and then suddenly she's breaking all publishing records as a result. So we listen to his spirit. I don't know what she thought at the time. I doubt she thought this will be the bestseller which will lead me to talk to the President of the United States. I think she just thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll write it down. And then it went from there. And so that's how we learn to respond to the spirit as he speaks to us. So we worship, we're affected, we take responsibility for actions, we receive forgiveness, joy, freedom, and then we say, I'll readily serve you as a result. Let's stand together, shall we? Just before I pray, just to say that during this next song, The bread and the wine are going to come around. And we'd like to invite you, whether you're a believer or simply this is a time where you want to take another step towards the Lord. You want to take a step in faith towards the one who changes us and fulfills us. Then we'd like to invite you to take the bread and wine, hold on to them. Joe will come back in a minute and we'll lead us through communion uh, and we'll worship 
uh, as we focus on the, on the cross as we do so. But let's just pray together. Let's ask for his spirit to be present. Let's ask that many of us would hear his voice, uh, just as Isaiah did, uh, as we sing and we pray now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Come, Holy Spirit. Come right upon us all, I pray. Help us as we worship you. We remember, Father, that you are high and lifted up. Remember that you're seated on a throne, that you're the safe one, and that we can give our hearts to you knowing that we become those we're meant to be. We want to ask, Father, that you would deal with our guilt. If there are those here this morning just particularly aware of their guilt, Lord, I pray that you'd help us, give us grace to take responsibility and then to receive, hear those words, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And may we hear your voice whispering direction, encouragement, strengthening, whatever it is that we need to hear. Blow across this room as we reach out to you and seek to honour you for all you've done, all the goodness and the kind, merciful things you've done. Come, come, Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.
As we hold our bread and our wine this morning, we are going to take a, a moment. We have just sang and David has awakened us again through these words of Isaiah to who God is and all that he has done. And as we have sang of who he is and all that he has done, we're just going to take a moment before we take the bread and the wine to, for a moment of confession because there is a way that has been made for us to receive communion this morning, to receive love, to receive forgiveness, to receive grace, which is the honor that God gives to us. And Isaiah responded when he saw God with, I am a man of unclean lips. He made his confession. And there is a power in the confession that we have to bring, not because we are bringing it to one who judges us or demeans us, because there is one who forgives and restores. And so we're just going to let the music play for a moment. And it might be that you just want to reflect on your own heart and make your confession this morning. <laughs> and then I will just read some words from another part of the Bible which speaks of this grace and speaks of all that we remember. So we will take a moment to just make the confession of our hearts this morning. Father, thank you. Doesn't seem to do justice to what we have read this morning. As we make our confession to you, we say thank you because it's the word that we have to remember again all that Jesus has done, how he came to earth and died and came back to life, that we can live in freedom. We can live alive in grace. We can see you. We can sing of who you are. We thank you that as we receive grace this morning, as we receive communion, Thank you that we are the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of your grace and your kindness, which were showered upon us in Jesus Christ. It's only through this wonderful grace that we are able to believe you, 
nothing we can do could ever earn this grace, this salvation. It is your gracious gift so that none of us will ever be able to boast for salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. We have become your poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny that you have for each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one. Amen. In your own time, feel free to receive grace as we continue to worship and sing of hymns.